Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're discussing oncofertility and adolescence. Our guests today are Dr. Abby Taylor, who's an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Urology at Vanderbilt, and Dr. Scott Borenstein, who's an associate professor of pediatrics, director of the Pediatric Sarcoma Program, director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program, and director of the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program, also at Vanderbilt. Welcome both of you to ASRM today. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to open with a question for for both of you um, to to get both of your your viewpoints on this. Uh, What currently are various barriers that make it difficult for healthcare professionals to discuss oncofertility with adolescents and their parent or, or parents or guardians? So I can start. I would say I think the first, I think the first barrier or challenge is a lot of times we are having this conversation sometimes with a 13-year-old in which sometimes big picture conversations about sexuality have not been had between mom and dad and, and, and patients. Um, and a lot of times, especially when we're talking about fertility preservation in males, we're gonna talk about uh, sperm banking and that can be an awfully awkward conversation. And sometimes it's the first thing it's been brought up. And I'm a, a bit blunt when I meet patients for the first time and I will just bring it up right then and there and say that we need to sperm bank. and. We'll get some very curious looks between mom and dad and, and and patients. And so I think that's the first step that uh, can be a bit awkward because sometimes we bring it up before it's really discussed amongst them. Abby, what do you think? So that is definitely uh, a barrier. It's not comfortable to talk about sperm baking because then if you actually get into what they need to do, they're going to go to a facility and they need to ejaculate into a cup and having a conversation with parents in the room, as well as a teenager, that can be a really difficult conversation. And, you know, you just have to gauge it a little bit, but, you know, a lot of kids are actually way more willing to talk about it than you think they are. It's just the discomfort of having parents talk about it. Um, So that is definitely a big one. And then I would say the other one where it's kind of nice to involve a pediatric urologist in the discussion is that there's such like urgency and fear surrounding this new cancer diagnosis. And frequently they need the sperm making to happen relatively quickly. If it's important that they start on whatever it is that may impair their fertility. And so when it's a a quick turnaround time, I think parents can be overwhelmed by this new diagnosis. And so throwing in this on top of it, it's, it's, it's really hard to separate those two things out. And sometimes I think it's nice. Like when Scott sends me one of his patients, he can kind of, I remove it from the cancer diagnosis. And so I don't necessarily need to talk to them anything about their newly diagnosed cancer or anything. We can just focus on, let's try to preserve your fertility. Here are our options for that. And so um, but I think that that is a barrier. Um, often the time crunch is a, a pretty big barrier for them. I, I want to go back real quick and, and say, since you mentioned, Dr. Bornstein, since you mentioned sperm collection or sperm banking, what are some other options that are available to young patients that that you you normally do suggest that, that comes with this very uncomfortable, you know, uh, topic of, of infertility or possible infertility, I should say? 
so for males, by far the easiest, uh, less than uh, the least invasive is going to be traditional sperm banking. Um, there are some other technologies that are often used for males that I think Abby can do a better job of kind of describing in which you can um, either um, use other methods to produce ejaculation, or you can actually collect some of the the actual, um, you can do a surgical procedure. I don't know, Abby, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, all of these for sperm banking, sperm banking is the only option. It's just how do you get the sperm? And so the easiest by far the easiest, least invasive is if they are able to ejaculate spontaneously and collect their uh, collection that then can be looked at and frozen appropriately down the road. But if they can't, and again, sometimes it is um, they're not at an age that that is something that they've done before. Um, there's something called like electro ejaculation. And so essentially that is you there, there's nerves that surround the prostate that can, if you stimulate them, you can make them ejaculate. Unfortunately, in kids, that can't be done with them awake. Um, on the adult side, there's a lot of other options, but um, that is something that would require uh, anesthetic for them to have. Um, so therefore, we really try to encourage, even if they've never done it, an attempt to see if they could do a collection on their own without any intervention. And then if they can't, or there's other anatomic abnormalities, you can harvest semen sperm from either the vas deferens by putting a needle in it and trying to aspirate some out. Um, sometimes depending, and this kind of all goes into the full on fertility treatments for down the road for anyone, not just, not just, you know, adolescents that are, are being treated with oncofertility um, where all the way down to these little sperm extractions, whether it's, um, microscopic or them actually taking a wedge of testicular tissue and then under a microscope getting sperm out of it. So there's a very large spectrum that can be used. Um, but we usually hopefully start with the easiest. And then the further down that path, you get the more specialized of a urologist you need. And it will, would then be like a male infertility specialist doing these surgeries. For women, it's more challenging in which for, um, the best way to preserve fertility in females is actually to collect eggs and collect sperm, and then you create gametes and you freeze those away. And that's what uh, uh, happens in fertility clinics all over the world. Unfortunately, most adolescents don't have that partner who they know they want to spend the rest of their life with, or at least to have children with. So that doesn't happen very often in what we're doing. And so the other options are is egg retrieval in which um, usually uh, adolescent females will be given uh, hormones to stimulate ovulation. Those eggs are then collected and frozen away. Um, and that, uh, and then those eggs can then be used later in the future um, for future pregnancies. Now there's some challenges with that. Uh, one of them is timing. It usually takes, you know, usually at least three weeks uh, in order to go through that process. And sometimes we don't have the time. A lot of the cancers that adolescents get um, are quite aggressive. And sometimes we don't have the time to do that. But when we have the opportunity, we'll certainly offer that as an option. Um, 
In addition to that, there are some, uh, there's also some more experimental protocols in which uh, you can do a surgical procedure in which you uh, take part of an ovary, you remove a piece of it, and then you freeze that away. And that is something that's being done more and more, but I still think it's probably uh, should be considered experimental in most cases because there have not been that many children born from that technology yet, but we hope in the future that'll be another option. Again, it's harder for females just because of the nature of where their um, their gametes are, which are in the ovaries, um, and that's more complicated. I, I think one thing though, um, I would say with all of these things that is a major barrier, and this is something that it depends on where you live, is cost. Depending on where you live in the United States, um, some insurance companies will pay for fertility preservation, some will not. Uh, uh, Abby and I live in Tennessee, whereas insurance will not cover any fertility preservation from sperm banking, which is relatively cheap compared to uh, egg retrieval, which is very expensive. And that is very cost prohibitive, unfortunately, for a lot of our patients. Um, and and I, I, I would love us to change those policies, uh, but unfortunately, those are out of my control right now. I want to ask you, um, I, I want to come back, I want to circle back to this access to care question too, but first I want to ask, what is defining adolescence here? Is this, is this 12 to 17? What's, what, what's the typical age range? Um, that's a good question. I usually think about adolescence starting around the page, starting around between 11 to 13. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, I, I think that's my usual rule of thumb um, of what I think about it. When it comes to fertility preservation, I kind of think it's the onset of puberty. Uh, Abby, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I would, I would say it's not necessarily an age, it's pubertal status is like how I guess I think of adolescence. And so to me, an adolescent is someone who has gone through puberty. Um, and then that is why sperm retrieval is something that you can do. But I know we're not talking about this, but pre-adolescence or pre-pubertal is actually a very big issue for males because we don't, you can't get sperm that you can then cryopreserve from them. Um, so that's, that's an entirely different talk. But so for me, I, that's kind of my delineation is whether they're post-pubertal or pre-pubertal. Dr. Bornstein, I want to go back quickly and, and ask you, and, and also Dr. Taylor, this as well. You said that there was, that, that cancers in adolescence are, can be especially aggressive. Are there, are there specific types of cancers that are more prevalent than, than others? So the most common cancers that we see kind of in the, in the adolescent age um, are leukemias, uh, with the most common being acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common cancer we see in childhood, but it'll also be a fairly common cancer in the adolescent population. Uh, other cancers that we will see are lymphomas, which are similar to leukemia or Hodgkin's disease, which can also be seen in this age range. We also can see often tumors called sarcomas, which often occur in bones, in the tissue around bones or in muscle, which are, uh, as a, if you put them all together, uh, make up a good percentage of the patients that we see in the teenage group. 
The other cancers we sometimes start seeing, but they're a little bit more common in the kind of post-adolescent young adult age are going to be cancers uh, like testicular cancer in males, which is higher incidence in your third decade of life, but we will certainly see teenagers and some adolescents present with testicular cancer as well. And then there's a huge hodgepodge of many, many, many other types of rare cancers that we see in children and adolescents as well. And I think uh, uh, there's a, a long list and sometimes those that can be adult cancers that we'll rarely see in the teenager adolescent age, or you can see some of the cancers that often occur in younger kids appear in those age as well. As a general rule, most cancers that adolescent gets are, are, are faster growing and more aggressive than what we see in adults. Um, but thankfully, most of the time, but not always, they often will respond a little bit better to therapies, which is a good sign. And I think Scott could probably um, elaborate on this better than I can, as you are the oncologist. Uh, but I mean, it not all childhood or adolescent cancers have the same potential to decrease your fertility. So it really just depends what is he going to be giving them and what is the likelihood that they would become infertile from that. And that's kind of how we gauge, you know, how aggressive we need to be in trying to keep the fertility status of patients. I'm talking today with Dr. Abby Taylor and Dr. Scott Bornstein, who uh, are both uh, at Vanderbilt. We're discussing oncofertility and adolescence. I, I want to come back to pose this question for both of you. Um, we were talking about access to care and, of course, things that that, that block it, right? Unfortunately, it's it's really state to state, region to region. However, you know, however that really breaks down. But even based on those particular barriers. Are, are there currently in a, any kind of general practice guidelines for helping doctors communicate with families, or is it strictly, you know, state-to-state, facility-to-facility-based decisions that are made? So, I would say, um, I, I think it still kind of varies from practice to practice um, and how different, uh, uh, but I don't think there's really established way. I think that, um, I also feel that programs that have, um, you know, dedicated adolescent young adult oncology programs really do a better job than I think either adult practices or strictly pediatric practices. And I think because it's one of the big tenets that we really try to focus on as a specialist who specializes in taking care of teenagers and young adults with cancers, it's always on our brain and on our program's brain that every new patient that we identify that is gonna receive therapy that potentially could affect their fertility, we're gonna talk about uh, what we can do uh, ahead of time. Um, and I think that's part of our culture and I wish it was common in, in, in sometimes in smaller practice or more community practices in which they don't have dedicated AYA programs. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons I do strongly feel that teenagers and young adults um, uh, that are diagnosed with cancer should be treated at centers that have AYA programs, because we're going to talk about issues like this. And not only that, we often have access to urologists like Dr. Taylor, who can help us guide these conversations. And that's really important. And I think we have the benefit at Vanderbilt of really have an incredible integrated team to help answer these questions in patients in which they're very vulnerable and they need guidance. 
Dr. Taylor, would you like to add anything to that? Um, no, as, as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any set guidelines. Um, uh, urology being involved is kind of a, a newer thing over the last you know couple years of, of trying to expand outside of the oncology realm. And, you know, and like Scott said, I think the centers that have that are bigger and have all of these programs to offer are going to make it a much more integrated approach. But there's no set guidelines for how that works or who's involved in that care team. My guests today have been Dr. Abby Taylor and Dr. Scott Borenstein, who are both at Vanderbilt. We've been talking about oncofertility and adolescence. Uh, Dr. Borenstein, Dr. Taylor, thank you so, so much for taking time out to, to discuss this with, with our listeners and, and the membership and, and, the, and, and, and more the general public. Uh, this, this is something I'd, I'd love to come back and, and have another conversation with you all about uh, in the not too distant future. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you for having us. It's wonderful. All right. And for everyone who's listening, please uh, subscribe to the podcast, uh, however you do that, whether it's through Google Play or Apple or however you uh, get your your media content these days. Again, I'd like to thank my guests. Uh, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.